So our reading for this evening is from Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, and it reads like this, Daniel chapter 1 from verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Those he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. They do that when they sacked another country. When one country invaded the other, they go to the temple and they steal some of the artifacts and they take them back. It's kind of a, no, 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 our God's bigger than your God kind of thing. So we'd go and, they'd go and take artifacts from the temple. And then the court king ordered Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz, I looked at what it means. It means horse face. You're not going to re- remember anything else from the sermon today other than Ashpenaz means horse face. But apparently, yes, I wonder if he had a particularly long face. Um, the, ordered, the, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical de- defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, the tribe of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, the chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, the king, who's assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. I would describe that as a legitimate concern. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief priest, who the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And we'll find out what happened later. So that's the story of Daniel 1. We're set about 600 years before Jesus. Um, Extra biblical history. Other writings of the time tell tell us that Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 587 BC. And the tribe of Israel, some of the Jews, the Israelites, were taken into captive in Babylon. About 25% were taken prisoner and into Babylon. And amongst them was this 15-year-old boy, a 15-year-old boy called Daniel. Daniel is a prisoner of war at this point. But he's also one of the brightest and best, and he thrives in Babylon. In fact, as we see as the story progresses over the next few weeks, he rises to number two in the empire. Um, He outsees, he outlives two empires, three emperors, and leads two of those emperors to faith in God. So Daniel thrives, not only survives, in exile. He enters the story age 15, and he leaves age 85. 
So there is something here for somebody of every age. Uh, last week, in the morning service, if you can see the sermon online, we looked at um, what it would be like for somebody of 15 to be taken out and dumped in an alien place. What it's like to, you know, when, when life picks you up and throws you a curveball or bowls you a googly. Um, we looked at that last week. This week, we're going to begin to look at some of the characteristics of Daniel that helped him to thrive and survive. Because, you see, he was part of a three-year brainwashing program. They want to teach him new language, new culture, new habits, a new religion, and he even gives them new names. Now, the thing you need to understand is Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's doing the best for these guys. He's, give, he's educating them. I mean, Babylon, it's a bit like... Daniel, imagine Daniel going to Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon is a bit like somebody from the Welsh Valleys, a small brethren boy from the Welsh Valleys being dumped in the middle of New York. And it's that bigger transition. Babylon, its architecture, its culture was way bigger than this farming community of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's doing the best for these young men. He's, he's giving them the opportunity to learn language and to learn literature and to be cultured. This is not beating them into submission. This is bribing them into submission. This is five-star luxury hotel, not solitary confinement. But sometimes feast can be more tempting than famine. Anyway, as part of this process of assimilation, of indoctrination, he gives them new names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That are their Hebrew names. Um, you may know that Hebrew names have specific meanings. Um, I used to work on a church in London, in southeast London, in Kibrook, and we had a large West African population. And all the West African kids had two names. One was kind of an anglicised version that I could pronounce and use, and one was a West African or Yoruba version that I, I could never pronounce any of them. But they all had meanings, and they all told me that they said, God is great, or right hand of God, or God's favour upon you. They all had these names and meanings. And the same is true in Hebrew culture. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, God is gracious, Mishael, who is like God, and Azariah, God has helped me. The Babylonian king gives them new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Unsurprisingly, these have meanings as well. Belteshazzar means Baal, protect me. The god Baal was somebody that the Babylonians worshipped. Shadrach, at the command of Aku. Aku was another one of the Babylonian gods. Mishael, which means who is like God, um, yeah, to Meshach, who is like Aku. And Azariah, God has helped me, to Abednego, servant of Nebu. So he's giving them new names that are kind of a cynical play on what their names mean. Each one is a, is a twist on what their name means. And he replaces the god Yahweh with one of the Babylonian gods. What I find interesting in this story is that, Dab, um, we're going to look at it in a minute, Daniel doesn't seem to protest the names. But he does protest the food, but not the name. And I wonder why. But anyway, a part of the perk of the job, he is given access to the king's table, the finest food. Now, the emperor wants these boys to do well. So he wants them to be well fed. I mean, this is a perk of the job. Think about maybe joining an Olympic team. If you're a young prodigy, uh, the Olympic team would come with a dietitian and a chef. And they give you the very, very, very best food because they wanted you to thrive. So on one level, this sounds like a good thing, but Daniel declines it, and he says no because he says he doesn't want to be defiled by it. Why? 
Now, what do we mean by defiled? Defiled means polluted. So if you imagine, if I ran Sarah a lovely bath one evening, she's had a busy day, and I run her a lovely warm bubble bath. I put candles around the edge. And then just before she's about to get in, I pick up the bin and throw it into the bath. I would have defiled her bath. I would have made it dirty. I would have polluted it. That's what defiled means. And, and Daniel appears to be worried that he will be defiled by the food. Well, why? Okay, well, I've heard several reasons for this, as I've heard this passage teached, taught over the years. Teached? Taught over the years. Um, one is simply that an argument for veganism. I've heard some people argue this. The king's food, although it was luxurious food, it was very rich. And kings weren't known for their svelte athleticism. They had access to the very finest food, cream and wine and honey, which normal people didn't have. And one argument is Daniel just knows that this is junk food. He wants the vegetables and water that he grew up with because that's a healthy lifestyle. Now, we know there's some truth in that, don't we? You know, you are what you eat. We eat junk, we feel rubbish, at least I do. And I know that when I'm training hard for something. But if I eat a good diet, it helps me in my exercise and my goals. But I don't really think that's the reason Daniel turns the food down. It might be part of it, but it's not the whole reason. So another reason is Jewish food laws. Um, the Jews had laws about food they could eat. God had given them these to set them apart as a nation. That they would be, dif- they would be different. They would only eat certain foods. Have you heard of kosher food? Okay, well, Jewish kosher food, these are kosher food laws. So one suggestion is that Daniel is refusing the food because it wouldn't be kosher. The problem is that doesn't make sense because food that's not kosher would be food that's been offered to idols and the meat and the vegetables would both have been offered to the idols. So why does he refuse one and not the other? And also there's nothing in kosher laws about drinking wine unless you take a priestly vow, a Nazarite vow, and there's no evidence that Daniel did that. So there's nothing against drinking wine. So why would he refuse the wine? So on one level it might be about food and saying, you know, we're not going to eat your food. But I think it's simply this. Daniel knows there's no such thing as a free lunch. You heard that phrase? No such thing as a free lunch. It's about where he puts his allegiance. This is about once he's eaten at the king's table, he is showing his allegiance to the king. And his allegiance doesn't belong to King Nebuchadnezzar. It belongs to God. It belongs to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. Um, It's interesting, in Hebrew, the word resolved is used. If you resolve to do something, you make a decision to do it. And the word resolved is used twice in this passage. The king resolved to give them new names. So Daniel resolved not to eat the food. They both made decisions. Interestingly, I think this prayer helps us understand it. Reinhold Niebuhr, written long after Daniel, We've heard it, it's often said at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think Daniel is just deciding this is something I'm going to make a stand on. This is something I can make a stand on. I can control what I eat. I can't control what the king calls me, because he can call me whatever he likes. We'll see later on in chapter 5 of Daniel that actually he's still referred to by lots of people as Daniel, so the name doesn't stick. Belteshazzar doesn't stick. But the king can call me what he likes, but I can control what I eat. I can control the things and the wisdom to know the difference. Does that make sense? I think Daniel is showing the wisdom to know the difference.
Now I'm going to go really quickly through these. If you want to listen to them in more detail, you can listen again to this morning. But I think we see four characteristics in Daniel that help him thrive in this situation. The first, as we see through, we go through the book of Daniel, we see great integrity. What do I mean by integrity? I mean, he keeps his word. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. What's on the inside is the same as what's on the outside. He's consistent. He lives his life with integrity, an integrated life where it all fits together and there aren't things he does in secret over here and things he does in public there. It's all integrated. And Daniel has great integrity. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is the message translation. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't manoeuvre and manipulate behind the scenes. We don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. I think Christians should be people of integrity, don't you? You know, how can you, uh, if you're there gossiping at the water cooler or gossiping about somebody in the playground, how can they expect you to take you seriously when you talk about your faith? Do you see what I mean? If, you, if you're lying here, how can they expect you to tell truth there? Actually, to be a Christian is to be a person of integrity, to try to let your whole life bear witness to this. Secondly, I think Daniel shows incredible discipline. Um, remember, Daniel is a 15-year-old boy and he's being offered this food. I mean, what control over his appetite and um, his ego? You know, I don't know many 15-year-old kids taken away from their parents who would have that courage to stand like that. Um, we, know, we see it in sportsmen and pop stars, don't we? Somebody, a 15-year-old who shows tremendous talent, who's plucked up by a premiership club, given a fantastic big salary and, and you know, uh, all the fame in the world and, and lawyers to cover over any misdemeanor that happens to go public. And we see them and they crash. And they crash not because they don't have the talent anymore, but because their character lets them down. How many times have we seen people that pop stars that had great fame, 12, 13, 14 years old, come crashing down when they hit 30? I think Daniel knows this and he knows how important discipline in one area of your life is in others. Um, Just because you can afford something doesn't mean you should buy it. Just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Do we understand that? That's discipline. That's saying, I could do this, but choosing not to live in a house where your mortgage is maxed to the limit, not choosing to spend everything you can on that car because you can do other things with that money and buy something slightly, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think we see that in Daniel, a life of discipline, self-imposed limits, Secondly, I think we see real courage in Daniel. Uh, real courage to stand against the flow. I mean, there were 25% of the Israelite population were taken into captivity. And here we see Daniel standing on his own, on his principles. Um, but mum, they're all doing it. How many times have we heard that? I'm not sure I've heard it from my kids yet, but I know I said it to my parents. Um, Daniel is able to stand against the flow. He has great courage Exodus 23.2 says this, don't go along with the crowd in doing evil. Don't fudge your testimony in a case just to please the crowd. Stand with courage. 1 Corinthians 16, keep your eyes open, hold tight to your convictions. Give it all you've got, be resolute and love without stopping. And finally, I think the last character quality we see in Daniel is great humility and kindness. Just the way he talks to the, the guard 
The guards have got a legitimate concern. If, if Daniel looks unhealthy at the end of this, he's going to have his head chopped off. He's there to look after Daniel. Well, Daniel says to him, well, you know what? Well, it actually says in, in the, one of the other translations that the guard had great respect for Daniel. I'm sure he had great respect for Daniel, partly because he was humble and kind. Just the way he spoke to the guard. He said, look, we both want the same end. We both want to be fit and healthy. Let's do a 10-day trial. And if I'm fit and healthy at the end of that trial, let's, let's stick with it. He shows great humility and great kindness. And in the end, we find out that Daniel is as fit and healthy as all of the others and shows great promise and is taken in to the king's court. Daniel is 15. He's 18 at the end of this time. I wonder what gave Daniel such confidence. Somebody had taught Daniel well. Before he left Israel, somebody had taught Daniel the stories of God. They'd, they'd become part of who he was. They'd become part of him. I know I'm grateful for, for, for parents who taught me the stories in the Bible. For youth leaders who encouraged me and showed me great love and friendship on the journey. That helped the stories sink into who I was as a child. So that then as an adult, I find them as a resource to draw on. Um, Josh is out with our teenagers today. Josh is doing a great job at the moment. He really is doing a really good job. And he's working so hard in schools, in youth group, in church. And he's doing a great job. And the kids love him. They really do. So please do encourage Josh next time you see him. Because it's so important to have those role models and people in your life, isn't it? There's an old film, and I'm going to finish with this. Fahrenheit 451. It was made in 1966, and it's a science fiction film. Unlike all old science fiction films, it's quite fun to look at how they imagined the future. All flying around, well, they have us all flying around in jetpacks, wearing kind of strange 1960s tinfoil outfits. But anyway, the story in this book is it's set at a time in the future, and books have been banned. Because books give you knowledge, and they give you insight, so they're dangerous. They give you dangerous ideas. So we can't have the people having dangerous ideas. So instead, books are banned. And there are people called firemen. And a fireman's job is to go, and if you find any books or a library, anyone reading a book, you're to take that book and you're to assemble them in the square and you're to burn them. That's the fireman's job, is to burn the books. There's a lovely moment in the film, halfway through it, it says, one of the characters, Mortag, says, is it true that once upon a time firemen used to put out fires? But they start fires. And anyway, as he's going around, he discovers, he starts to become intrigued about these books he's burning. And he begins to look into some, and he, he discovers there's an underground movement trying to keep books alive. And he gets drawn into it because he falls in love with a, a lady from that community. And eventually he has to leave his job as a fireman. And she takes him into a forest where there's a community of people who are trying to keep the stories alive. But they still can't have books. So what they do is they're each given a book to read. And they're told to walk around the forest and read the book from cover to cover time and time and time and time and time again. Until it becomes so a part of who they are that they live out of the book. That's the idea. That this book becomes so a part of who they are that they become, they're able to live out the characters in the book, the story in the book. And they become this book. Then the books can't be destroyed. Because the books are within them. The books are set in their heart, set in their soul, set in their being. And if they want to pass it on, they find somebody else and they tell the story to them. 
But the books can no longer be destroyed because they become part of their very core. We are people of a book. We are people of a story. God's story narrated in the Bible. And I think the challenge I want you to leave you with is what we see in Daniel is somebody who the story of God has become so intrinsic, so, so central to who he is, that when he finds himself in exile with the temple gone, with the worship gone, with all the props gone, everything that would sustain his faith, he has managed to imbibe, he's managed to live out enough of this story in his heart to take it in, that he has this deep well to draw on. And I think a challenge to us from Daniel is, is, are we people who live like that? Can I challenge us for that? Can I challenge us? I think our, our values as a church are a good expression of, of, of how to live like Jesus. Jesus' values in the world, to love generously, to act justly, to forgive swiftly, include selflessly, practice humility. Are these the values that we live out of in the world? Because they're Bible values, they're Jesus values. And I don't only mean in the big decisions in life, the big career decisions, but in the small every day, in how we treat other people in the playground, how we look out for those who are isolated, picked on or bullied, how we engage in gossip and chatter in the workplace. How do we live out these values in the ordinary, everyday opportunities within our lives? How do we become such people that the story has become so within us that it is how we live in the world? And I think that's what we see within Daniel. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we thank you for this story of Daniel. We thank you for the way it's going to unfold over the next few weeks. Lord, help us to draw on this story and other stories in the Bible, and principally the gospel stories, the stories of Jesus, the story of your love for us. And as we seek to live out our lives in school, in work, in our families, Lord, we pray that this, this story would be the shaping story for us, the shaping narrative that, that guides and leads our life, that we would live out this story, that it would become so part of who we are, that it would become second nature. Lord, help us as we do that, as we live out as your followers in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen.